everybody and a very warm welcome back to the latest episode of Final Community Podcast. In this podcast you are hearing an interview between Dan Johnson and me Nadine from Soul Disco. Dan Johnson is one of the leading experts in restoring audio tapes. Hello everybody and a very warm welcome back. This week we have a special guest, one of the leading experts in recovering and saving tapes, the great Dan Johnson. Dan, thanks for joining. Uh, pleasure to be here. Then may you introduce yourself a little bit. Uh, I'm Dan Johnson. I own Audio Archiving Services Incorporated in Burbank, California. Uh, we specialize in tape transfer and tape restoration. Uh, so we get um, tapes from record labels, from artists, from estates, um, from some, you know, from somebody's parents that, you know, they have a recording of their grandfather that they have, they have, haven't heard his, his voice in like 50 years. Um, we do pretty much everything uh, audio related. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, the main thing is that we we try and preserve uh, music as as well as possible. Uh, it all depends on the tape condition, um, and that's you know it's a great job. I, I get to hear stuff that people haven't heard in decades, or in, mm. and that some people will never hear. So you started, as far as I know, as a recording engineer. And is the story true that Michael Jackson called you the Muffin Man? Yes, yes. Um, I. I started off at Ocean Way Recording in Hollywood, and uh, they also owned a studio called Record One, which is in Sherman Oaks, California. And I did, I primarily worked out of Record One, and Michael Jackson, for his last album, Invincible, uh, took over the whole studio. And the studio was kind of laid out like a house, where you had a living room, a kitchen, uh, bathrooms with showers, uh, multiple lounges, and, um, uh, he booked out nine months and we were going for about 24 hours a day, seven days a week for most of that time. And you get bored. So I just started baking muffins in the kitchen just at like four o'clock in the morning, uh, just to pass the time. And, um, when, when there was downtime and so everybody started eating the muffins and I got the nickname Dan, the muffin man during that session. So great. And how did you come from being an, an engineer and working with people like Michael Jackson to getting into the archival project or in the archival job? How did that happen? Well, in 2008, uh, I was uh, I was working at Capitol Records um, in their studios, and I decided to go freelance. And that's, of course, when the economy collapsed, which was awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, worst time ever to go freelance. So uh, I'd been doing engineering gigs here and there. Um, and a friend of mine uh, called me and said, hey, have you ever thought of doing archiving? And I was like, what's archiving? Uh, is that even, a, what, is, what is that? And he's like, oh, it's tape transfers. And I said, that's a job? Like that's a real, because in the studio we would get tapes and just part of our everyday kind of thing. We just put them up and transfer them. Um, but there was actual, there was an actual uh, company that was doing it for Warner Brothers and they needed somebody to help. So I went over there and started part-time um, just doing tape transfers for Warner. And then within six months, I became the uh, chief engineer. And I was working probably about 60 to 70 hours a week doing the Warner Brothers catalog. And that, oh. last, that lasted for probably about five or six years. 
What was your highlight in transferring something from the Warner Brothers catalog? Oh, there's so many. Uh, we did. Uh, we were re we were retransferring about 2,000 of the top albums that they had. So the first thing I did was the Ramones catalog, and then after the Ramones, it was uh, uh, Warren Zevon, Chicago, uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Um, there was just so many tapes and so many amazing albums that it's really hard to kind of pick one that was the best. So, and when you when you started your business, how did you do that? How do you have a catalog when you say, okay, there's a tape and there's mold on it? I do step one, two, three. And if there's something other issues like I don't know glue on it or sticky, I do step six, five, nine. How did you learn that? Um, just over time and through experience. Um, one of the things is that being the chief engineer, I would be, I'd be the one that would get all the problem tapes. Um, so I, anything that was falling apart or sticky or whatever, like the really like nasty tapes, uh, nobody else would do them. And so I'd get stuck doing them. So with that, I learned how to take care and how to, how to remediate mold, how to, uh, how to get rid of adhesion, uh, that kind of thing that, you know, like all the really, like the roughest tapes possible. Those were the tapes I was seeing on a daily basis. And so after a few years of just reaching out to people and learning things and trying things and you, you kind of, you kind of find your own method with it. Hmm. Oh. And just for the people, just to name a few transfers for di you did for certain artists like George Benson, and this is just a short version. So we have George Benson, we have Bill Evans, we have Ray Charles, we have John Coltrane, Miles Davis, Aretha Franklin, Prince, The Doors. That's quite an achievement then. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, probably the, the scariest one I, I, I've ever transferred was probably John Lennon demo cassette for the uh, Double Fantasy album. And um, it, uh, Jack Douglas called me and said, hey, I have a cassette that I want you to transfer. And I was like, okay, cool. You know, come on over. I'll do it. Um, so Jack shows up and just hands me this cassette. And on the cassette, it says John Lennon demo. And I'm like, are you kidding? Like, you could have warned me, Jack. You know, and the it was a tape from uh, probably the 70s, like late 70s, uh, like 79. And um, it was it was all the demos for the Double Fantasy album. Uh, John went down to Bermuda and recorded them on a boombox. And he would multi-track. So he had two boomboxes. He would do, like, piano and vocals on one and record that on one boombox and then play it back into another boom box. And he would do like drums and all the overdubs. Uh, and he would use like pots and pans for drums and stuff. And so we're, we're sitting there and Jack's telling me stories about the demos and about recording double fantasy. And um, it was one of the coolest things and scariest tapes I've ever had to transfer. So. Could always happen ruining it in, in, the, in the process. Oh yeah, especially with tapes that old and that have been played a bunch of times, like it, it gets really scary because the tape could snap. It, the you know, I'm all my machines are maintained as as well as possible, but you never know. It could be the one time where the machine goes rogue and eats a tape, and that's scary. So yeah. there's always a little, there's always an underlying fear with with dealing with uh, one of a kind media, um, and you have to respect that. Hmm. 
So let's let's discuss, and so we get into the process of it. Um, you are responsible that this record even exists. This is William Starkey's reissue of Love of Mine. And Brian Sears, who did the research for the tapes, told me that without you, this reissue wouldn't happen because the tapes were in such a bad condition. They were in a basement, I think. There were dust, there were mold, they were pretty much done. May you can explain for people like me who have absolutely no idea how this magic thing you do works, explain the process when somebody brings you tapes who are in the state as the one which were on the William Stuckey. Well, yeah, the, um, those tapes were sent to me in July of 2020. Um, and they, I remember opening the box and they were in really rough shape. Um, the first thing I noticed was that they had mold all over them. Uh, and that looked like that, you know, they'd been kept in a, in a, a, a not so pleasant environment for a long time. Um, so the first thing, the first thing you have to do is mold remediation. So you take off the layer of mold on the top and the bottom of the tape. Um, How do you take that off? The, well, I found that the best way to do that is uh, with uh, lighter fluid for Zippo lighters. So Ronsonol lighter fluid. Um, that stuff is magic on tapes. Um, my wife is a chemist and uh, I'd always heard the isopropyl alcohol was what everybody used. Um, but I, it, it occurred to me like that's the same stuff that you use to remove uh, oxide and gunk off the tape machine. So if you're going to use that on the tape, it probably isn't a good idea. It's probably going to remove some of the oxide off the tape. So we did some, uh, we actually did some tests um, using an electron scanning microscope um, or a scanning electron microscope. And, uh, and we used different solvents on sample pieces of tape and found that Ronsonol lighter fluid is the safest thing to use on analog tape. So when I do mold remediation, I mask up, I have HEPA filters, I do it outside if possible, um, just for personal safety. Um, and then you just, you just clean off as much of the mold as possible and then let it dry out. Um, the second step, because it was polyester back tape, um, it was, uh, especially from the seventies, I believe it was Ampex 406 or 456, uh, which is known for uh, an issue called sticky shed syndrome. Mm -hmm. uh, and what happens is over time, the tape starts accepting moisture from the environment and it becomes sticky. So the oxide where the music is held becomes sticky. So if you try to play the tape or rewind it, um, it'll actually pull the oxide and uh, the oxide will go all over the tape guides and the heads. And that's where the music lives. So you're effectively destroying the tape. Um, so what we do is we test it with a Q-tip, uh, do it a very slow wind, put the Q-tip on the oxide part of the tape, and then check it for any oxide that's coming off. If you see any oxide, put it in the oven. So we have food dehydrators that uh, bake out the moisture in the tape. So um, usually our baking process is 135 to 145 degrees Fahrenheit for 12 to 15 hours. And then it has to cool for 12 to 15 hours for the binder, for the binder and the tape to reset. And then you check it again. And sometimes it needs multiple bakings. I believe the Williams Stuckey uh, tapes uh, required uh, probably a few days of baking before it was playable. Wow. Yeah. So 
in your opinion, the tapes from the 70s are worse or uh, better, not so good to uh, recover than the ones from the 50s or the 60s? Is there a quality um, issue? Yeah, the uh, it, it all it, there's so many different variables. Um, I've had tapes from the 50s and 60s that were falling, that were literally falling apart. Um, it mainly depends on how they were stored. Um, if they like with 50s and 60s tapes, if they're stored in a high heat, a high humidity environment, um, it'll it'll start to shrink the acid. They're, those tapes are usually made out of acetate backing. And it'll shrink the acetate um, or it'll make it become brittle. Uh, so that's why you can't bake acetate tapes. You can only bake polyester tapes uh, because it will actually destroy the tape if you try and bake it because it'll suck too much moisture out of it and it becomes brittle and will snap in half. Um, so that's every tape formulation has its own issues. And that's part of where the experience of handling thousands of tapes comes in because I can go okay, this is Ampex from like the late seventies. I've dealt with this before. I, you know, the, these are the things I need to look out for and these are the ways I can correct it if possible. Hmm. So once you've, you've baked the tape, you're putting it on, on a tape machine and try to make a digital copy or how does that work? Uh, yeah. Uh, after the tape is baked and uh, is playable enough, um, then there's another thing we check for, especially from Ampex from the 70s, and that is uh, lubrication uh, issues. Uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of the tapes from the 70s, a lot of Ampex uh, will leach out lubricant if it was kept in uh, high humidity or high or not climate controlled environments. Um, so over time, the lubricant in the tape leaches out and there's a white haze on the oxide part of the tape. And this tape had deteriorated to the, and these two reels of 16 track multis had deteriorated to the point where there was a thick coating of lubricant over the oxide. Um, so to clean that off, um, you have to pretty much play the tape and uh, each pass, there's this white stuff that looks like a donut glaze that comes off on the heads. You clean the heads play the tape again, clean the heads uh, until there was little or no lubricant coming off on, on the tape, uh, from the tape. So with these tapes, uh, they were so degraded uh, that the lubricant was not cleaning off the tape. So I would only be able to, so here's, <laughs> here's why the tapes were, were in such bad shape. Um, I would have to do a 30 to 40 second pass of part of a song and then the heads would get covered with the with the lubricant and you lose all the high end and the level drops so it sounds like somebody put a cloth over the speaker um so there's no high end so it starts off well for the, for the first like 15 to 20 seconds and then uh it starts you start losing high end like the hi-hat goes away and the cymbals start going away um, so you would, I would have to capture 30 to 40 seconds, uh, find out, find the part where the high end starts going and cut that off, uh, in Pro Tools and digitally, and then capture, clean the heads, capture another 30 to 40 seconds, clean the heads, capture another 40, 30 to 40 seconds. And then at the end of it, digitally stitch everything together, uh, to make one cohesive song. 
And uh, with the tape like that, that's that's probably the last time that tape is ever going to be played. Uh, it was in sh such bad shape. Um, and it was, I remember talking to, uh, to you and Fryer over at Athens of the North and letting him know the condition of the tape and what I was going to have to do and asking, asking him like, um, this is it. This is a one shot thing. Um, and it, it's probably going to be pretty expensive to, to transfer a tape 30 to 40 seconds at a time. So uh, do you, do you want to go with forward with it? And Ewan was like, absolutely. He said, this is the only known copy of this album. Um, and this is such a great album and that I, I owe it to, to William and to the fans to, to make this album happen. And so that's what we did. And we, it took days uh, to capture the entire album at 30 to 40 seconds at a time. But we finally did it. Wow. Oh. So what's the, um, the digital file format you're using to capture the album? Um, everything's done in Pro Tools uh, at a high resolution, 192 kilohertz sample rate, 24-bit uh, depth. Uh, bit depth. Uh, so the highest possible resolution we can do. Uh, and that, that's standard at this point. Um, and so that's for future... We're, we're trying to future-proof it as much as possible by doing these high resolutions and hard drive space is cheap nowadays. So why not? Um, because uh, I've, I've had to retransfer stuff that was transferred like in the nineties and they did it at 44.1 kilohertz, 16 bit. And, you know, at that point in time, that was like the standard uh, for transferring. And so now we can do up to 192, 24 and so it's you know why not absolutely you, yeah. you should go for the best possible way at that point because when you have this tape and you can like with the william stucky you have one shot only do it yeah. the best possible way um the thing with the tapes is let's let's say we have a miles davis tape from the late 50s mm -hmm. um with each time you play that tape you lose some of the the quality is that is that correct? So you have to be careful with how many times you play that tape, the master tape, for example. Uh, yes and no. Um, I mean, tapes are very, uh, especially analog tapes, are very resilient for the most part. Um, it's if you just played it like sixty times in a row, yeah, there's going to be where you're going to start hearing high end deficiencies. Um, but during transfer, usually if the tape's in good shape. You can you can play multiple times if you need to. Um, like I said, I've had to retransfer tapes. I do a lot of retransfers actually, uh, where people have either you know they did it way back in the day, and now we have better technology, or somebody has screwed up the tape at another facility, and so the client gives me the tape to to do a, a retransfer of it. Um, and I don't really hear. Uh, any any particular loss and if the tape's in good shape hmm. yeah a couple of months ago or i think last year i don't know there was a huge discussion of an all analog production against a digital production on vinyl have you heard about that uh, discussion I think um, yeah there's uh yeah where uh the vinyl production where they call the the triple a where it's an all analog chain uh, to do yeah. vinyl. 
Um, and then, uh, cause I know MoFi just, uh, just had a lawsuit against them, uh, because they, they claim that all their, all their releases were triple a releases. And then it was discovered that they were using digital files for some of them. Um, yeah, I, I, I think a lot of times if done right, the digital files might sound better than an all analog chain, um, because then. The master uh, and this is you know this is more of a mastering question but um the mastering engineer can get into the digital file and kind of clean up like the ticks and pops and uh just any odd noises that may have accumulated on the tape over years um whereas if you're doing a straight analog to analog you know going straight from the analog tape to the cutting machine um it, all the artifacts on the tape are going to be on the record, which, you know, if you're a purist, that's, that's great, but you can also get the same thing from a digital transfer. Um, I, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a personal, it's a subjective question, you mm -hmm. know, it's a personal taste. Um, but for me personally, I have no problem with digital transfers. Um, you know, aside from what I, you know, this is what I do for a living, but just hearing a digital transfer versus an all analog cut. Um, if done right, they're pretty much, you know, apples and oranges. So, yeah, and sometimes you don't have another choice. Like with the William Stucky one, you have the tape and it's one shot, and you have the digital, but not the tape. That that happens more often than not, um, where you know you have one shot to do it. I do a lot of tape restoration uh, that goes to like Bernie Grunman uh, to do like. Um, to do an all analog uh, cut. Um, so the client will give me the, the tape first and clean up the splices, the leader, bake it, um, you know, get rid of the lubricant, um, any, uh, any adhesive that's on the tape from the splices, I remove all that. So when Bernie gets the tape, it's as smooth playing as possible. Um, but they also have me do a transfer of the tape while I, while I'm cleaning it up just as a safety. Um, because some of the tapes are just, they're falling apart. I mean, we're dealing with, with age at this point and bad storage conditions. And sometimes you can't do the, the AAA cutting because the tape is just one shot to, to get it done. And that's it. Can so, you name an example? Um, there's been a couple. Um, I don't know if I can actually talk about them. Uh, for client confidentiality, though. Um, okay. Yeah. No, I, I totally understand. Yeah. Would have been interesting to, to know because usually I do hope as a record buyer when they say it's a triple A, you 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 can you can trust that. Usually, um, we you know many people trusted MoFi and we're very disappointed. But uh, if you're transparent with that, like you said, and you have no other choice, and you explain that to the to the people, then it should be absolutely all right. You know what you. Yeah, I, I, I think the I think the customer would understand if you know, especially with how old some of these albums are, that mm -hmm. you know, the tapes are there. It's an organic material. It's gonna degrade. It's gonna you know, some of these tapes just did not survive well. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, if you if you can even get a single pass off of them, sometimes you're lucky. Was there ever a tape you couldn't save no matter what and you wished you could have because it was maybe for you personally very important or a cultural important album? There's, there's been a few. 
Um, and, uh, it, 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 it kills you. It just, your heart just sinks. You, you feel like a doctor going and telling the, the patient's family that, that the patient didn't make it through surgery. It's, um, uh, there's been a couple of things that uh, where the tapes were just in too bad of a shape um, that they couldn't, I, there's nothing I could have done. Um, there's a thing called adhesion syndrome, and that's where the tape actually fuses to itself. Um, and once that happens, it's almost impossible to get it to unstick from itself without causing like complete failure on the tape. Um, and that just happens over time. Uh, we, we've been seeing a lot more of that, especially from tapes from the early eighties, uh, again, Ampex, um, where like, especially towards the hub and we think it's more of a compression thing where the tape has been, you know, packed tightly, um, and it's tighter towards the hub. And then over time, uh, the binder kind of leaches out and it fuses the oxide to the backing of the tape in front of it. And it's the same as uh, gluing two pieces of paper together and leaving it in a drawer for 50 years and then trying to unglue those two pieces of paper. Um, it's not, it doesn't work out well. Um, and that's just something that we've been, like I said, we've been seeing a lot lately um, from tapes from the eighties and then digital tapes uh, have their own issues. So DATS and D88s and ADATs, um, those tapes were not, built well and did not survive. So we're seeing a lot of issues with digital tapes. I remember very clearly that the dead tapes, I think in the beginning of the nineties were the thing to store your music. I, I knew musicians back then who worked in the studio who swore I'm doing everything on dead tapes, all my old tapes on transferring to dead. And now you're saying me that wasn't a good idea. That was not a good idea at all. Um, at the time, because uh, I was working in the studio when everybody was doing everything to DAT, um, they would print their mixes to DAT uh, instead of analog tape. Um, it was the wave of the future. You know, every, they said, you know, this is, it'll last forever. It's, uh, you know, and then we're finding like 30 years later, um, the tape is falling apart. It's deteriorating to the point where you're losing information on the tape. And that's the difference between uh, digital and analog tapes is that with analog tape, more often than not, there's stuff we can do to it, like the information's still there. Uh, digital tape, it's ones and zeros, and if it's gone, it's gone. There's nothing we can do to get it back. Um, and so when the tape, when the digital tape deteriorates, we're finding that we're getting a lot of dropouts, um, a lot of uh, digital distortion, a lot of errors. Um, and there's really nothing we can do to get those errors corrected and to get that music back. So it's, wow. it, yeah, it's been kind of scary seeing how poorly digital tape is aged. Wow. So in the background, we see a lot of machines and you've told me before we started the interview that it's just one room. Yes. How many tape machines, what kind of uh, equipment do you have to do that? Um, I, oh, I haven't, I haven't done a count of the amount of machines I have. Um, part of being an independent, uh, tape transfer, uh, business is that you need to have as many formats as possible. Um, because there, especially during the nineties, there was just so many different formats that they were thrown around, especially digital formats. Um, but yeah, we have everything from your standard, uh, two track and mono 
like the ATR, the Ampex ATR 100 series, which is a beautiful machine. Um, and I have different head stacks for it. So we can do half inch, quarter inch, mono, stereo, quarter track, four track, three track. Um, and then I have a Studer 827 behind me uh, that I have multiple head stacks for. And I have custom heads for it. So we can do two inch, 24 track, two inch, 16 track one inch uh eight track and one inch 16 track and then i have digital formats like uh sony dash which is a 48 track uh half inch digital and mitsubishi 32 track one inch digital um then i have eight ads and d88s and dats and cassettes and everything so it's uh, i have a 1500 square foot office and it's filled with stuff how do you maintain these machines? You have different eras. You need spare parts sometimes. How do you do that? I have a, an entire room full of spare parts and donor machines. Um, it's hard to find techs these days that actually know how to work on these machines. Um, and if you can, they're really expensive. So I've had to learn uh, how to how to do simple maintenance on them. Uh, you know, once we're starting to get into like component stuff, then I'll call a tech and have them come in. Um, but it's it's difficult and it's really hard to find parts nowadays. Uh, a lot of these machines were built in the 80s and 90s and their parts are obsolete. You can't find parts for a Mitsubishi X850 32 track digital machine anymore. Um, so you have to find a second machine that maybe had a blown power supply or something and you can pull the cards from that. And so I just, I have, I have what I call my tape machine graveyard, which is a storage room that I have that's just filled to, to the ceiling with parts. So you have some Frankenstein machines. Absolutely. And you have to. Is it more difficult to maintain the machines from the eighties and the nineties instead of the seventies or sixties? Is there a difference? Um, with the, with use of, uh, with IC chips, um, especially with the digital machines, a lot of the components uh, were are harder to source these days. Uh, whereas the '70s machines, um, there's still uh, there's still some some comparable parts that you can get for them. Um, but like a lot of the digital machines, a lot of the stuff that was used inside of them is they haven't been around for years. Years. Oh, so digital is not as good as uh, people might think. As a format, yeah. Um, sonically, uh, a lot of the digital stuff sounds great. Mm. Um, but as, as holding up as a format over time, it's it definitely has its issues. Oh. So from all the tapes you ever recovered, what was your favorite project? Oh that's that's a tough one um the one there was one that i didn't think i was going to be able to save and that was a band called ssd control um they were a legendary hardcore punk band from boston and uh the tapes were i guess they were in a basement for 40 years and the basement had flooded a lot during the 40 years um so the tapes were sent to me from boston i opened up the box and it was just mold and water damage. And the tapes themselves were actually covered in about a, maybe an eighth inch of dirt. Um, 
and it was it was the scariest thing i i'd ever seen it was uh and i called the i called the owner of the record label and i was like i don't know if i can do this this i think these tapes are too far gone he said yeah a couple people have looked at the tapes and said just to throw them in the trash um but he, he said well you know this is what you trained for your whole life so let's see what we can do with these tapes um so i it took me 10 days and i did mold remediation and i i hand cleaned um every inch of those tapes and each reel was 2500 feet of tape um and i hand cleaned every single reel and they came out perfect there was no audio loss on those tapes um and it surprised it really surprised me um and so that album is actually being uh released i think this october um and it was the album that those were the only copies of the tapes that existed and it was a it was um such a legendary album in the punk rock community that um i it, it just made me feel good that i was able to do it and that the labor involved was worth it um because sometimes that's not always the case sometimes you put a lot of labor into something and the tapes just don't survive so but that that was probably the one i'm proudest of wow you should write a book oh, if i had time i <laughs> i have i have tapes stacked up waiting to be transferred so you know that's that's my uh that's my purpose right now so maybe when I retire, I'll, I'll write a book about it. Yeah, you, you are the go-to person for, for these tapes. Uh, yeah, um, and that's, you know, it, it wasn't by choice. It was just, like <laughs> I said, experience and being the one that, that had to do all the, all the tough work on the rough tapes and, uh, and then learning from all that. So um, I'm, I'm fortunate that I've been able to experience that and then I have the, the knowledge base that I do, and I love sharing it with people. Um, because I think this is stuff that, you know, there, there's, there's some people in the community that have secrets and, oh, this is my method of doing this or what, and that's not helping anybody. So I am more than happy to tell anybody how I do stuff. And if it saves one more tape, then that makes me very happy. That's, that's great because that's all for the same purpose on, on saving the music or whatever it is on these, these tapes for future generations in the best possible way. Absolutely. Did you have ever a celebrity coming to you and saying, Hey, thanks for saving my tape or let me see how you do it. Oh, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, we, we get a lot of tapes from artists themselves. Um, and they'll come by and just check out the operation to see what we're doing. And, uh, and it's, it's always great to actually meet the person that whose music is on the tape and to talk to them about it. Uh, Jackson Brown is one of my clients. And, uh, and he's just the best guy in the world. And I love it when Jackson comes over and we, you know, we talk about, you know, what we talk about the album. We just talk about like the back when he recorded it, that kind of stuff. And it, it kind of puts you in the room when you listen to the tape, you know, you can kind of hearing those stories about when they recorded it. Um, you hear certain things and, uh, it's just, it's magical. I mean, it's, like I said, it's the best job in the world. Are there some future projects coming up you're involved with and you, you can talk about that? Uh, not at this time. No, there's, um, uh, there's always, I'm always working on stuff and I 
because of client confidentiality, I, I can't talk about any of it, which kills me because there's some great stuff that I've been working on. Um, but everybody will find out eventually. Uh, once everything gets released, then then I can talk about it. But, you know, at this point in time, I can't. So we will sure doing a second interview, you can be sure. Yes. <laughs> That'd be do, great. Do, do I, I never saw your name. I never saw your name uh, on the uh, on everywhere uh, on 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 some on, on the covers or somewhere. How do I know that you worked on this? Uh, that's the thing. Um, we don't get album credit a lot of times, um, and you know, I it, for me that's okay. Like I'm not doing it for for album credit. Um, you know, I'm I'm doing it for the for the music, which you know is as as nerdy as that sounds, I mean, that's kind of what it is, but yeah, that's, um, uh, and that goes back to like the whole digital transfer versus AAA thing where a lot of times, uh, the, the record label won't put my name on something because it might be touted as being a AAA master. And it was actually digital transfers that I did. Um, or just, you know, a lot of times, you know, the it, people forget about this step and don't put, you know, put my name on an album. So, but yeah, I, you know, I, it doesn't really bother me. It'd be absolutely. nice, you know. It absolutely would be nice to, to see that they work with the best uh, people available to do that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Dan, thank you so much for doing this interview. Uh, it was and we will be absolutely, you tell me when, uh, because there is no name written on the covers, you tell me when the great stuff is out, that you did it, and then I absolutely want to talk about this with you. I will, that would be uh, that would be great. Okay, so, thank and you. Everybody should listen to the William Stuckey album. It's, a, it's an amazing album. And, uh, and a lot of love and work got put into that. So everybody should yep. listen. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I absolutely love the hyper sticker, which was on it, which says uh, ridiculously rare 70s Arkansas soul album. And I can tell you what, it took me years to find an original. Oh, wow. But the thing is, and that's, I totally understand your point with the digital and, and analog thing is, and I have that with another album as well. Um, that was a back then i have an album from barbara harwood on the rise from 1970 and that was released on a private press and it wasn't in the best available recording studio and all of this so when they did the reissue they had to do needle drop because there were no tapes and the needle drop sounds way more better because it has been digitally done than the version on my very tiny not so well pressed uh, original copy and it's the same next to this William Stuckey is another point is that um, the mastering wasn't done as William Stuckey intended it to do. So with the uh, digital thing and the notes that were left, I think, in the boxes, um, this reissue could also be mastered the way he wanted it. So you get a great sounding record of a track which wasn't on the original, plus the mastering the way he wanted it. And you can hear that. You can hear the difference. Yeah, and that's possible through digital technology. So. You know, it's it, it it. There are a lot of instances where it helps uh, the final product. So, you know, it's I, I'm I'm all for the analog purists. I I completely understand that. But at the same time, 
there is also a good point for digital transfers too. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely on the same page with you about that. So it's, it's just very important to make clear what, what you're buying and then you can decide if you want it or not. Exactly. Yeah, and in some cases you just can't find an original copy like this William Stuckey, it's just like nowhere to, to be found. And then you go and buy for 20 or 30 bucks, you buy the reissue. Yeah, and so. it, it might sound better than the original issue, you know? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, Dan, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. We do hope you enjoyed this interview and stay tuned for other exciting episodes on the Vinyl Community Podcast.